The Water Values Podcast, Session 95. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, I'm Dave McGimsey. Thanks for joining me. Got a great show for you today. We have Andy Welton, who is uh, an assistant professor at Purdue University, and he's doing some fantastic research on how plastics are used in plumbing and the effects of plastic use in plumbing. Uh, so we'll we'll be getting to Andy's uh, interview in just a little bit, but we're rolling out a new feature this week in the Water Values Podcast. It's going to be called Bluefield on Tap. Uh, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, but first, if you've been listening to the podcast and enjoying it, would really appreciate a rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, whatever podcast directory you listen to the show on. And would also appreciate it if you'd consider making a donation to the Water Values Podcast, kind of help keep the lights on here. Uh, but in any event, you can um, make that donation by going to thewatervalues.com, clicking on the little PayPal donate button. It's, it's real easy to do. And thank you very much to those of you who have donated donated to the Water Values podcast. Uh, now for Bluefield on Tap. It's a brand new segment. It's going to be great. Uh, as you know, with the podcast, I don't really do kind of current events or news. Um, it's, it's more of an educational piece that just centers on one particular topic. Like, for example, I haven't really done a special uh, podcast about Flint or the water quality in Flint. Uh, but in any event, what Bluefield on Tap, what that's going to do is it's going to give you uh, a great insight into what's going on in the water market now. Bluefield's a fantastic um, uh, you know, market research firm in the water sector, and we're going to rely on Reese's, uh, Reese Tisdale's, Reese, excuse me, Reese Tisdale, that is, uh, on his expertise in you know what's going on in the water markets today. So uh, it's going to be a fantastic segment. We'll try to get it uh, rolling at the first Tuesday of every month, and we'll inaugurate it here with this uh, with this issue of the Water Values Podcast. So here we go. Take it away, Reese and Dave, on the very first segment of Bluefield on Tap. Well, Reese, uh, U.S. infrastructure has seen better days. Under President Trump and Congress, uh, we got a spotlight now on infrastructure investment, both federal and private. Uh, tell us what you know. What's going on in the market right now? What's it mean for water? Are there any disruptors out there that you see emerging? What's 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 in it for water? Yeah, I think. I mean, it's a, it's actually this is one of the questions that comes up, um, obviously regularly these days since the election, um, and what does it mean? What does the new president and quite honestly new Congress mean for mean for infrastructure and exactly that the spotlight is on it and so i think from a water perspective the great thing is that it's in the news every day and i think that's a good thing particularly you know people don't typically think about water but between what the president is saying about infrastructure uh, right the democrats have just proposed new uh new legislation whether it passes or not is is another matter but focus on a $1 trillion investment on infrastructure. And then you couple that with things like California and Flint and hydraulic fracturing and the use of water. So it's in the news every day. So I think the main point of that is if people are seeing it every day, they're going to hopefully start taking matters into their own hands. And that's also driven partly by increasing water rates. 
derived from about 7% a year. In some cases, places like Toledo, they're in double digits, like 13%. Uh, because of the drought in California over the past couple of years, water rates have been rising, you know, 10, 15, 20% in some cases in municipalities. So I think the on the customer side of things, you're starting to see a concern and resistance. And so there's going to be a lot of public discourse about what to do about this. Because at the end of the day, if the utilities aren't able to cover their operating costs and capital costs, but it's partly through rates, then there's got to be alternatives. And so as far as disruptors go, what we're seeing, I was just out in California this past week, actually. One of the things that was of real interest among uh, a group of water leaders was water infrastructure as a service. And so what does that mean? It means that there are water project developers, financiers, technology vendors that are looking at ways to circumvent, well, should I circumvent the water utility in the sense that they want to get more out of every drop. And so essentially they'll buy water from the utility, but what they would do is end up reusing and recycling the water, whether it be for the cooling systems in their commercial properties, whether it be for their toilets, whether it be for the irrigation. So that was something that was really interesting that at Bluefield, you know, our experience is that we saw in the renewable sector, the same thing happened with solar PV. Once costs reach a certain level, and there was a business model, and that's really what it's about is developing a business model to to, to get more out of less, because if water rates are going to continue to rise and put pressure, particularly on the commercial and industrial companies, then it starts hitting a bottom line. So I think that was something that we were really interested in and seeing, because there's plenty of capital out there. It doesn't come without hurdles, certainly. And I think just to reinforce this, one area of interest for us and to our clients is that San Francisco just passed a mandate or a law essentially stating that any commercial property, new commercial property over 250,000 square feet is required to have decentralized or on-site water treatment for reuse and recycling. Wow. Wow. So, so when I look at this infrastructure as a service, um, is that it's essentially, it sounds like kind of water efficiency or water conservation on steroids. the operations and maintenance and the uh, you know ongoing uh, and, the, and the financing or ownership of the system there are ways that it can be deployed like I said the, you know I think it was 2007 2008 everybody thought that oh, the solar service uh, provider model where companies like Sun Edison and solar city which you see which are ubiquitous now in many in many states they stepped in and said, we will basically take over ownership. We will finance these systems that will make your power bills. Uh, we'll, we'll flatten them out, essentially. And part of it was driven by concerns about climate change. Part of it was uh, uh, electricity rates were increasing. 
you know, everybody was looking towards renewables and MPV costs had come down for other reasons. So I think what's happening is, is players in that sector are now looking at the water sector for um, a similar opportunity. It's difficult. And I think the key factor, key point of this is the expectation that it's not to turn around and recycle the water for drinking water, because then you start, you move into a whole different, um, I guess, risk level or risk criteria where you really have to be on top of that. But if it's going to cooling systems and, and toilets and irrigation, uh, it doesn't have to be treated at such levels and monitored at, at such levels that you would see for drinking water. Excellent points, Reese, and uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, we very much look forward to uh, our continued involvement in this Bluefield on Tap segment, so uh, appreciate your time so much. No, I appreciate it, Dave. Look forward to it. There are a lot of things happening in the market, and uh, we'll try to stay ahead of it so uh, your, your listeners can stay as informed as possible. Thanks so much. Well, I hope you like Reese's insights into infrastructure and where the market is situated right now. Uh, the infrastructure as a service, uh, really interesting concept and that as far as where that's going to go, and I'm sure we'll hear more about that uh, as, as we get updates uh, every month from Reese on, on uh, where the market's going there. Um, now on to Dr. Welton and Plastic Plumbing and Pipe. Fantastic, uh, fantastic professor over there at Purdue, and it's a really interesting interview. I think you're going to love it. So without further ado, fasten your seatbelts, open the valves, and here we go. Well, Andy, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad uh, that you were able to make some time for us today. Uh, could you please uh, tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Well, thanks so much for the opportunity to be here and to talk with you and your, your audience. I, uh, I'm an environmental engineer at Purdue University, and I'm on the faculty here. And, and when I was uh, growing up, I, I liked uh, playing down in the local pond and uh, skating on the local pond, and, and that kind of was my interest in water. Terrific. Um, so, so with that interest in water, uh, what? How did you kind of develop that? Where, you know, you're. We know you're at Purdue University now, so. Uh, can you tell us a little about how you how you kind of got there and what you're studying and what you're doing now? Yeah, so when I was uh, I, I went to college at Virginia Tech and I I was thinking about um, you know what I wanted to be when I grow up uh, and I really didn't know uh, what really interested me until about junior year um, and uh, I started working with a faculty member doing some drinking water uh, research and, and trying to understand drinking water better and I realized at that point that that there was I thought everybody understood what's in our drinking water. Um, and as a college student, when you find out that people don't, uh, you can get a little scared, but then you can get energized to help people. And so that's really when I started uh, doing research and, and trying to help people understand what's in their drinking water. Got it. And so how has that, um, that wh where have you kind of taken that interest in what's in our drinking water? What, what kind of research projects are you working on? Right, so at Purdue, um, you know, we work on um, disasters and, and critical infrastructure issues and, and water and energy power systems. Um, and, and so today, you know, that was really a maturation of, of my experience when I was with the U.S. Army uh, and, and seeing kind of the issues that the military uh, faces and humanitarian operations and combat situations. So um, a lot of the lessons learned from those experiences uh, can be directly applied to civil works in the United States. And, 
So that's really the inspiration behind why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, I see there's a huge need. Got it, got it. And so some of the other things I think you're doing, you're working a lot with plastics and kind of emerging issues in water infrastructure. So tell us a little about, you know, what, what exactly that involves from a research perspective. Right, so plastics. Uh, plastics are, I think, the future for drinking water <laughs> in treatment. Um, we all know what a plastic water bottle looks like, and about 10 or 15 years ago, maybe not as many people knew about plastic water bottles. Um, plastics are everywhere, and we're, we're, we're transitioning from a, a cast iron, ductile iron, um, galvanized iron, lead pipe systems to plastics. And uh, I got involved in this about 10 years ago because I wanted some answers. You know, what's leaching out, how are these materials aging, how long are they gonna last? And uh, when I was asking those questions as you know, 10 years ago, uh, nobody really had any answers, so I figured that was a good thing to get into. You know, initially I thought you were calling back to the graduate, uh, you know, when, um, when she's, <laughs> she tells Dustin Hoffman, you know, or the, the father tells Dustin Hoffman plastics. So uh, uh, <laughs> uh, initially, kind of where, uh, you, one of the things I, I think that caught my ear when you were describing, you know, the, the transition to plastics was that, uh, some of the some of the other materials, the ductile iron, the lead, essentially, you you indicated leaching into the water. So what kind of stuff is getting into that water from those from those uh, metallic pipes? Right. So metallic pipes, um, you know, lead uh, lead leaches from lead pipes. Iron leaches from ductile iron. But with galvanized iron, also leaches sometimes some lead, some cadmium, some zinc, some other metals that are present in these 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 metal composites. <clears throat> and so we're for hundreds of hundreds of years, we're used to metal pipes. We have water chemistry associated with them. We know what leaches out. We, we pretty much have a good idea of what will cause bad things to happen to our pipes, which is why uh, the, the debacle in Flint was so um, significant, is because we knew doing what they were doing would cause bad things to happen, yet they did it anyways. And so um, with metal pipes, we, we have a lot of data about um, what leaches out and, and how they age in, in drinking water systems. And, and so um, when it comes to the, the point of, of rehabbing versus replacing these, you know, new construction, mm -hmm. uh, just from an initial, I mean, based on what you're kind of saying, it we, it ought to, we ought to be completely replacing all this stuff rather than rehabilitating it in any any form. Um, or am I misunderstanding that? Are, are there are there ways to kind of rehabilitate pipes that are in the ground already? Right. Like, so this is an issue that a lot of people are are struggling with. You hit the nail right on the head. You know, should I remove and replace this Swiss cheese looking cast iron pipe that runs down Main Street? Or uh, can I leave it in place and insert some type of plastic liner inside it that, that prevents the water from leaking out? And so, so these are issues that uh, cities across the country are, are facing. And you're seeing billions and billions of dollars go to, to public works projects to rehabilitate pipes, to remove and replace pipes. And so these are real issues that people are, are struggling with. Yeah, and so uh, can you kind of walk us through when someone wants to uh, line a an existing pipe, kind of what's the process? How, how is the – is it kind of just a slip liner that goes in there or is there uh, – or is it kind of like a 
for lack of a better term, kind of a meld in place or a, a, a you know, install in place type of installation? I mean, how, how's this how's this accomplished? Right. So there's there's a number of considerations about whether or not you just remove and replace a pipe or you uh, can can repair it in situ. Um, when you repair it in situ, sometimes you can add 50 years before you'll ever have to touch it again. So, so that's very attractive uh, because sometimes these pipes are in Main Street, and you don't want to be digging up Main Street um, because it will be expensive. There will be a, a huge, uh, possibly public outcry that there's a lot of um, lost business in the area, and, and it just uh, reduces the quality of life when you can't get to the store the way you want to get to. So, so that's a big issue. Now, the materials that you're talking about, you know, how do we repair these pipes? Well, the technique you choose needs to be based on the condition of the pipe. So if I show you, say, a cast iron pipe that just has a few blemishes, it's corroded a little bit, um, maybe it will fail in about 10 to 15 years, we can possibly line it with a, a, a material, a plastic, um, that that is... Um, inexpensive and, and easy to install. If, for example, you have a Swiss cheese uh, cast iron pipe, and I saw a lot of these at U.S. military installations, um, they weren't repairing the pipes, they were just removing and replacing them because they were just so far gone. Um, you cannot in, you know, repair those pipes. You have to remove it because when you insert that liner and you try to position it, the liner may bulge through one of those holes and into the soil and so in rip and tear, and so you'll have these other issues that that simply make it impossible to to repair and situ those pipes. Okay, excellent point. Excellent point. Now, when you're when you are installing a kind of a slip liner, uh, how I mean, how's that done? Because this is kind of a it's an underground system. I mean, are you are you kind of digging down to a certain point uh, and then opening the pipe up and then you know inserting. Uh, Inserting fire, are these are these liners flexible, uh, or do you have to kind of get a straight shot to slip them in? I mean, what what can you kind of describe how these liners are? Are they, you know, again, are they flexible? Are they kind of very hard plastic? What what are we what are we talking about when we're talking about a liner? Right. So there's there's really two ways to line a pipe nowadays. Uh, one of them is you take a pipe that you've already manufactured at a, at a, a facility and you drag it or mechanically push it through the pipe, so hydraulically, so you're using a lot of force and pressure, and you're, you're moving that in. Um, and so that's, the, you have products like high-density polyethylene, uh, PVC, uh, polyvinyl chloride uh, liners, and, and those, are, those are more rigid. <clears throat> There's also what I call chemistry in the field, which is where they literally, they can spray on a coating, um, just like somebody would, would spray on paint to your car, uh, they go inside the pipe and they spray on this epoxy material or this polyurea material on the inside of the pipe, and that seals the pipe so that maybe the corroded metal or corroded concrete underneath that pipe uh, now doesn't touch the water anymore. So that's, that's chemistry in the field where you're spraying on a coating. Then there's uh, this other technology called basically cured-in-place pipe or CIPP, and that's where um, it, it's kind of a, a blend of these two uh, processes. You have a, a, a fabric that you saturate with chemicals, and then you drag it into the, or, or blow it, using air, into the pipe, and then you inflate it so the outside of it touches all the walls of the pipe, and then um, you, you cure it. So you can uh, steam it, 
you can uh, expose it to hot water for a very long time, or you can uh, shine UV light at it, and that will cause this liquid resin to harden at, like a rock. Okay, and and are there what are the differences in terms of durability and age for these kind of different installation scenarios? Right. So there's <clears throat> right now what we're seeing is, uh, for example, I got called uh, three days ago by a homeowner out in uh, California, and she's having her epoxy lining uh, basically flake off for her plumbing pipes. Um, and, and according to epoxy manufacturer, they believe that it was improper installation. So one of the issues that we have with these chemistry in place or chemistry in the field situations is that you're, you're relying on the contractors to be adeptly skilled at manufacturing products in the field on site under all conditions. And so that's when you can have these uh, failures occur where they don't last 50 years or they don't last 20 years. Or in this one situation, um, the woman's uh, warranty said the, the epoxy lining was supposed to last 10 years and it's been nine years. So, um, so you can have these situations happen when um, the, the products are just not installed correctly. Got it. And uh, so it sounded like the epoxy warranty was 10 years. What about like if you're putting in a, a, a more of a rigid liner, what kind of life expectancy do you anticipate to get out of those types of liners? So there's a lot of work that's been done to, to kind of uh, estimate uh, how long these liners will last. And um, there's, there's been a lot of work. The, the estimations are 20 years, 50 years. Some of the issues with this is that uh, these projections are being made without any validation in that, you know, I've seen, I saw one company say 235 years. And so... <laughs> I mean, it's great to say that, but you and I and they, maybe their grandkids and their great-grandkids might not even be around to determine if great-great-great-granddad was correct. And so um, that's an issue, I think, is the, the predictability of how long these products are going to last. Yeah. yeah. Excellent points. Excellent points. So um, let's, let's move over to new construction and talk about uh, some of the issues involved in there. What, what do you see as the most prevalent type of, uh, you know, this the plastic pipe that's going in these days? So for buried water distribution pipe, uh, what you're seeing is a lot of high-density polyethylene and PVC. For service lines, uh, the, the, the pipes that go from the water main to the, the customer's uh, house or to their water meter, you're seeing a lot of um, high-density polyethylene, PVC, uh, PEX, cross-link polyethylene, or CPVC, which is chlorinated polyvinyl chloride. And so those are, those are the plastics that you see that are displacing um, the copper market, the, the, the ductile iron market. Indoors, you're seeing uh, plastics displace those markets as well. Still, copper is the most popular uh, type of plumbing material in the U.S., uh, but you're seeing the, the PEX pipes uh, start to displace that market um, you're seeing the CPVC uh, materials start to displace that market. And um, as this more and more production comes into place, I think you're going to see uh, displacement increase. Sure. And uh, so the, the PEX piping, that's – I've redone a bathroom, and I used PEX pipe when I kind of re-ran my plumbing. And I loved it because it was 
it, it wasn't rigid, you know, because it, it was flexible and it was just easy to use. And I, I thought it was, uh, it was fantastic to use. So, <laughs> uh, but in any event, um, when when we're looking at this, uh, are are there any, you know, uh, really life cycle issues, plastic versus you know, for indoor plumbing, plastic versus copper, uh, that we need to be aware of in terms of what's going to last longer. What are some of the the issues between those two types of pipe? Yeah, so definitely, that's a great question. So life cycle issues. Um, what I'll focus on is the disposal. So when you go in and you demolish demolish a building, it's frequently that that the contractor goes in and rips out all the copper, and then either uh, sells it uh, to a you know, just um, somebody who can recycle it or, um, or uses it themselves for other products. For plastics, you don't see that happening. And, uh, the re and I'll give you a specific example. There was one plastics industry that told me that was advertising that their products were recyclable. We generated about, uh, I want to say about 1,000 to 2,000 feet of their product in testing down in Alabama. And at the end of the project, I called them and asked them what to do with it, and they said it's not recyclable. So, <laughs> so one of the issues here is marketing claims and then backing up those marketing claims with actual mechanisms of, of you know, end-of-life use. Uh, and I think that's what the public has to be aware of. That's what utilities and municipalities and consulting engineers need to be aware of. If, if there's a company out there that's claiming something, tell them to show you the data take that data and bring it to somebody independent to ask them to validate it. Got it. Got it. Uh, same thing, you know, same question if I could, and uh, moving it to um, kind of the, the, the new construction outside the home. Uh, what are the, what are some of the life cycle issues there? Uh, you know, traditional, you know, metal pipe versus uh, a plastic pipe. Right. So for metal pipes, metals, you know, they can be expensive, and, and uh, generally they are um, downcycled. You know, they, they take them and they, they'll melt them down for other, other uh, uses. <clears throat> Sometimes they turn them away because they're just so far gone in the landfill, but many times they, they downcycle them for other uses. Uh, for plastic pipes, um, I'm not aware of activities where those materials have been downcycled, meaning that they take the used, say, failed plastic pipe, broken plastic pipe, and it doesn't have to break because of service life. It could be because a contractor hits it with a backhoe, or it could be some other reason that has completely no relationship to the product itself. I'm not aware of what uh, manufacturers do with those products or cities, municipalities. Okay. Um, you, you brought up a great point in terms of, you know, what happens if the plastic pipe gets damaged? Uh, are the same types of repair Op uh, options available for plastic pipes as they are for metal pipes, or or how does the repair of a pipe uh, differ from one to the other? Right. So for for metal pipes, we're I mean for anybody who's been in the water sector, <clears throat> we know how to tap pipes, and we know how to seal the leaks. And same same approach is applied for plastic pipes for buried water distribution systems. In Plumbing systems, where you're dealing with very small diameter pipes or service lines, it's it's a different story. Um, it, it's they're harder to repair, and many times what you see is when there's a leak in a plastic pipe, home or in a service line, uh, another leak's going to show that that roll of pipe that was used to to plumb that home or service line, 
And so what you see is just uh, outright removal and replacement of the, uh, the defective product or the aged product because people know that you know, a storm is coming. They're going to have to start replacing a lot of these, and they don't want to spend those resources to do that. Got it. Got it. Um, so, you know, fr from your expertise here in this, you know, kind of uh, emerging issues in plastics and how we're, how we're uh, getting to replace and rehabilitate our water infrastructure, uh, what do you kind of see as the um, – as, as where plastics are going with respect to, to infrastructure replacement and rehabilitation? So I, I think uh, plastics have, a, have an appropriate use in, in drinking water, transport, and application. Um, just like with metals, copper, and ductile iron, uh, if you leave plastics in contact with the water for too long, bad things can happen. If you leave water in contact with copper and, and ductile iron and these other products too long, chemicals can leach out above health limits and, and bad things can happen. So, so we're dealing with the same types of consequences, except what we don't have is a really thorough science-based understanding of what's leaching out, what's causing the odors, um, and, and what happens to these chemicals when they leach out. Does it feed the microorganisms in your plumbing system and allow them to grow? There's evidence that that happens. Do they uh, leach chemicals that then react with the disinfectant your utility puts in the water and transforms into carcinogens? There's evidence that that happens. And so none of these products are being kind of screened for, for these consequences. And uh, we've approached some agencies about maybe changing how they screen products, and they're not interested. Hmm. So, like, uh, like, uh, uh, what's the consumer testing? You, you know what I'm talking about? The consumer testing agency. Um, so there's you, no consumer testing agency. There's a there's a uh, there are no federal agencies that oversee uh, pipe safety in the U.S. There's the, the EPA is charged with drinking water safety, and they only care about the chemicals in the drinking water. So. Uh, so it depends on uh, what chemicals are in the water. And they historically have had a, a long history of understanding water chemistry and metals. They have little to no understanding of plastics. Um, and if, if you look at their technical staff, uh, who some of them I admire greatly, uh, they're trying to get up to speed about plastics because they're seeing just the industry change on them. And uh, to, to maintain you know, their readiness and protecting public health, they need to understand what these materials are doing to the water. Got it. Now, I, I want to come back to this issue of what's getting in the water, um, uh, but but have what what have I missed? What have I not asked you that you think is important concerning, uh, you know, essentially plastic infrastructure? So there's one issue that's emerging, in it, and I say emerging because people are starting to pay attention to it. It's been around for 20 years. And that is uh, the installation of uh, cured-in-place pipe. And uh, when you use steam, uh, you generate a white chemical plume uh, that basically leaves the pipe. Uh, and after the, 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 the white chemical plume leaves, um, you have a cured pipe. But um, what we're seeing is we're seeing the number of chemicals and types of materials that are emitted from these work sites 
are not what the industry has publicly claimed that they are. And uh, because of that, uh, there are numerous questions about the consequences of, of certain rehab technologies. Uh, and I would say for that one, uh, there are worker concerns, worker safety concerns, there's the people that are in the area uh, that are walking by the site uh, and they're told that that white cloud is steam when in fact it's not. Uh, and so we're seeing this primarily because our regulatory infrastructure is unprepared to deal with plastics. And so there's no eyes on this. Uh, and the industry that developed the technology had the best intentions, um, but I, my understanding is they don't have the expertise to understand the emissions and the health risks associated with their products. So, so that's, I think, where we are, and that's something that we're going to be looking at for quite a long time. Yeah, sounds like it. Sounds like it. So um, uh, let's get back to what's getting in the water. You uh, have some news concerning uh, a new research project you've got going. So could you kind of talk about what, what uh, you've got in the hopper for the next couple of years? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. Uh, yesterday, the Environmental Protection Agency awarded us uh, about $2 million dollars to help uh, better understand how to design safer plumbing systems so that the, we can better guarantee that the water that reaches faucets in the U.S. is safe. Um, we have uh, about $1.9 million uh, from the, the EPA, and we have about $1.1 million from industry. So we're working with uh, Whirlpool Corporation, we're working with schools, we're working with water utilities, um, some uh, nonprofit organizations, and we really pulled together a, an amazing industry team as well as academic team uh, because the results of this work, we hope, will be directly implemented into practice. So this research study isn't going to wait five to ten years before it pays off. We expect results uh, next year, actually. Oh, that, that's fantastic. And you've got a great team. In the, in the article I read, at least, uh, among other noted, noted folks, Janice Beecher, uh, from um, MSU's Institute of Public Utilities is is involved, and and I just have a world of respect for her. So, um, you've got a great team now. In terms of kind of what what that research focus is, what one of the main drivers, at least I read from from the article, is ironically uh, conservation measures are causing uh, some of the, the the health concerns regarding the drinking water supply, and that's because of uh, you know, as you kind of alluded to earlier, the longer water stays in contact with a plastic or a metal or whatever, it's more is going to leach into it because as we, you know, most folks know that we're listening to the podcast that water is kind of the ultimate solvent, right? So, so can you kind of talk about that, you know, that aspect of what, of, of how this is driving your research? Right. So there's, there's been a number of studies with regards to uh, saving water energy usage. So in 1994, the Energy Policy Act was passed, and that was George Herbert Walker Bush's effort to make our country more energy independent. And he realized that, hey, we're heating up a lot of water, and we're using it for showering and other activities, but like 75% of it we're just dumping down the drain. We're not actually using for our activity. So we could use yes less. So industry really innovated these low-flow fixtures. And so since 1994, a, um, a faucet would, a bathtub faucet would flow nine gallons per minute. Okay. So I have memories of when I used to go to my grandmother's house in Boston, and when we'd sleep over there and take a bath, it would 
take like two minutes to fill up the tub. And I remember <laughs> that like, oh my gosh, because sometimes I overflowed it. Nowadays, you, you know, with my kids, you turn on the tub, you come back 10 minutes later, it's still falling up. You come back 10 minutes later, it's still, it's almost ready. So, so that's just the scale of water usage that we've, we've changed from. And a lot of people can probably relate to that. You got it. And so, and essentially the advent of these low flow, um, uh, fixtures is causing less water to come through the actual faucet, and we haven't changed the diameter of the other pipes. And so, what's happening, right, is it's kind of a we're getting a backlog, or a, it's a it's a bottleneck, uh, and so this water is staying in contact with all the pipes, right? And so, right. the worst thing the worst thing you can do is you have a house or an old building. And then you outfit it with low-flow fixtures everywhere. So you know that you didn't change any of the diameter pipes. What that means is it takes a lot longer for a drop of water to get from the utilities street to your faucet. And so Professor Edwards at Virginia Tech and his team discovered in, in one green building it took 30 days for a drop of water to go from the street to the faucet. We've found uh, 15 days. And Wow. It's a, you know, water that's being delivered to homes is not intended to sit still for 30 days. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I'm kind of curious. I'm, I'm What I'll be very interested to see is how your research is going to impact plumbing codes in terms of what size, uh, you know, pipes are going to be. Uh, implemented in homes, you know, whether industry is going to latch onto this and, and before, before even a plumbing code gets changed, are they going to start making smaller pipes? Um, very, you know, fascinating stuff that has a lot of implications. So I'm really interested to see how, uh, how your research turns out. Uh, kind of, you, you indicated you might have results next year. What's just for the listener's benefit, what's kind of the timeline that you're talking about here in terms of, of uh, the, the course of your research, how long is it going to take and, and when's the project going to wrap up right so the epa project was awarded uh yesterday and it's a three-year project um the first year is very intense uh we plan to do extensive sampling water sampling of schools residences uh, office buildings we designed the project to sample where people live where people work and where they send their kids to school because we think those are the, kind of the three things in life that we deal with um we we expect results, uh, I mean, we've already started working. We've already started about three, four weeks ago, we started uh, having team meetings. And uh, we expect results to come uh, pretty rapidly. We have some other projects that are ongoing here, funded by the National Science Foundation, uh, and we've been uh, getting that information out, um, not just in the scientific literature, but trying to get it into the hands of uh, homeowners. Got it, got it. Um... Well, Andy, you've been absolutely fantastic today. I, a really interesting and fascinating field you've got uh, that you're working in. Uh, so for those folks who want to find out more about you, the Welton Group, and Purdue, where can they go to find that information? Right. So they can go to uh, org, or they can go to um, a Twitter feed that I have called The Welton Group, um, or they can Google me. And I have people email me all the time and contact me and ask me to, to talk to them about their, their plumbing issues, their drinking water, materials issues. I just got off the phone with people uh, yesterday from a utility 
down in Texas who's, who believes that the product that was installed in all the homes by the contractors is actually contaminating all the water down in that area. So um, utilities are trying to struggle with, you know, who's responsible for the water quality of the tap. Um, and contractors, I do have to say, you know, they, they have the best intentions, and sometimes they have no idea that the products that they have are, you know, will cause uh, customers to, to have a lot of complaints. So it's a really complicated area, and I, I hope more people start working in this area so we can help everybody uh, get cleaner, safer, and aesthetically pleasing water. Oh, fantastic. Thanks so much, Andy. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. You bet. Bye. Well, I hope you like that interview with Dr. Welton. Andy Welton was fantastic, great guy, uh, and it's a really interesting research field that he's working on. Due to the length of the show, we're not going to have any uh, takeaways today, uh, but in any event, really appreciate it. Again, as I said at the top of the show, uh, really appreciate your listenership. Thank you so much. And uh, again, please leave a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, whatever uh, podcast directory you're listening on. Uh, and also, please consider making a donation to the Water Values Podcast. Would uh, greatly appreciate that. Uh, one other thing, uh, you can check out the show notes for this uh, this uh, session of the Water Values Podcast at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 95. Uh, you can also email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can tweet at me at DTM1993, and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag Water Values. So thanks so much. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.